0: You are listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie in the United States, and this is Fresh Hell, your favorite international podcast. My partner in crime, Johanna, lives in Austria, and if you haven't listened to us before, we're friends who met online about five years ago, and for the past almost four years, we've been getting together weekly to tell you a true story of murder, mystery, or macabre events in history. Unfortunately, our regular listeners, I'm sure, have already noticed that we don't have Johanna today. Every so often, one of us just can't record, and the other has to do a solo episode. So I'm sorry to say it's just me today, but don't worry. Nothing's wrong. She's okay. We're okay. It's just sometimes that six-hour time difference combined with life means you only get one of us every so often. It's fine. She's going to be back next week, and I can't wait to hear all of her thoughts on this case. We have so much to talk about. But before I get into it, I want to give thanks to our newest patrons. Thank you to Lisa FunSize2Talk. Thanks, Erica Barker. And thank you, Monica McAvoy. Thank you so much. We we just appreciate you all so much. Our next online hangout session with the Murder Tier patrons is going to be Tuesday, February 28th. It's uh, coming up. So check the feed for more information, the Patreon feed, if you are already a patron. And hopefully I'll tell you more about this at the end, but right now I wanted to tell you before we get into this, something confused us last week. And while this definitely happens from time to time, it's not often that the timing works for us that we can include it in the next podcast episode. So usually if we have a question about something or just anything of that nature, we chat about it in the Facebook group. But today... I can tell you. So last week I said that Guy's first wife Joellen had gotten out of the marriage alive and that she quote lived in a tree stump by a river. And I wrongly thought it just meant that she lived in like a small wooden house. I just didn't I didn't really think and I didn't take the time to look it up. So thank you to Brandy Jean who listens to us on YouTube and thank you to Courtney in our Facebook group who both let us know that people used to live in homes that were made from the stumps of ancient redwood and sequoia trees. These massive ancient trees that left behind stumps big enough for people to live in. They were bigger than my last house, I think. They're really, really interesting. We were both absolutely fascinated by that. So thank you very much. This is episode two of a three part episode, updating you on what we now know about the unsolved Jane Doe case on Cape Cod that had been known as the Lady of the Dunes. After almost 50 years, we know that she is Ruth Terry from Whitwell, Tennessee, and she married a man named Guy Rockwell just before her murder. If you didn't listen last week, please go back and listen to episode 185 first, because you'll miss a lot if you didn't listen to that one. But if you have listened, here's a quick reminder of what we discussed. Guy Rockwell had changed his name to Raoul Guy Rockwell before he married his first wife, Joellen Loop, in 1946. They moved to Seattle, and they opened a nocturnal antique store in a ramshackle building by the water. After 10 years of marriage, Guy very cruelly left his wife and child for the also-married Manzanita Mearns, and they married in September of 1958. Manzanita's 18-year-old daughter, Dolores, is also living with them once they're married. She's attending college and working full-time to pay her tuition. Manzanita knows he's cheating, and she's upset about the gaggle of women who show up every night to flirt with Guy. She sees a therapist to try to cope with her jealousy, and she tells the therapist on March 31, 1960, that she wants to fight for her marriage, and she intends to confront Guy about his affairs as well as some of the business practices that she's finding a little bit shady. This is when Manzanita, who is also known as Mansie, and Dolores vanish. Guy says that Mansie has left him, run off with another man, and taken everything, despite bank records later proving that he was the only one to make any withdrawals. But he says she took the money and then she left with Dolores. He's devastated, he's crying, he's drinking a lot. He files for divorce from Manzanita, citing cruelty and desertion, and because it's uncontested, the divorce is granted in three months. On the same day his divorce is final, he announces his engagement to Evelyn Emerson, and they marry at the end of July 1960. He then claims to be in need of some funds in order to travel to Canada to purchase some illegal artifacts. Evelyn's folks give him $10,000 as an investment in this great Opportunity. Evelyn last sees Guy on August 3rd and he says he'll be back in no more than four days. But after six days pass, worried he might have been the victim of a crime because he's traveling with $13,000 cash, and at Guy's lawyer's advice, she speaks to the press asking for help in finding her newly wedded husband. All right, so that's where we left off, and now we're going to talk about where he was because this is inconceivable. Guy's lawyer received a call from a woman we'll call Blake because that's the pseudonym that Anne Rule uses for her in her book. I read in a couple of newspaper articles that Blake was actually the wife of Guy's best friend, and that the same best friend may have helped him write the letter to Evelyn's family, you know, the one about what a war hero he was and he was too humble to accept awards and all of that nonsense. But what else do we know about Blake? Well, it seems she's wealthy, or her husband might be. She's in the society pages a lot and lives on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle, according to the Anne Rulebook. So Blake calls and she wants to meet with the lawyer, and she also would like a police officer there because she is in a rage. So Herb Swindler. The detective is still on the nightmare task of going through all these passenger manifests. He's trying to figure out exactly when and where Guy had flown to. So he asks Gail Leonard, a homicide detective, to go with the attorney to see Blake and see what she has to say. Gail Leonard is also a man. Uh, if you're a Ted Lasso fan, I did wonder at first if he was a feminine junior because his name is spelled G-A-I-L unlike medical examiner Dr. Gail Wilson, who is G-A-L-E, like the character in The Hunger Games. But I ended up looking it up because I was like, wait, we have two men named Gail? And it seems that Gail, spelled either way, was always a gender-neutral name, but far more common for men back in the day, back at this time. Whereas Gail, G A I L. As a nickname for a woman, was a lot less common. It was usually short for Abigail, with Abby being a more usual nickname. All right, so I was just surprised to have two men named Gail, and I had to look it up. All right, so Blake says that she has known Guy for five years. She was apparently in an unhappy marriage, at least on her end, and she was very open about the affair that she and Guy had been having for quite a while. If she was the wife of Guy's best friend, which I would absolutely believe, then she might have met him through her husband, so that makes sense. She was gorgeous, but she was in her 20s, so not old enough to be the mysterious sexy cougar always coming around the gallery late at night that we discussed last week. Blake tells them that on July 16th, so that's after he filed for divorce from Mansie, but before he married Evelyn, they'd gone out to lunch, and Guy told her all about the Fulbright scholarship he'd been awarded. He then suggests to her that she should join him on his yacht and sail to Portugal with him. He wants her to leave her husband for him and run away. And she laughs it off, because he's said things like this before. But he's serious, and he asks her to think about it. And he asks her over and over and over again, and eventually she decides. And she tells him that, yes, she will go to Portugal with him, on the condition that he wait until she returns at the end of July, from a vacation that she has planned in Palm Springs. And he says, okay, I'll wait. And then she says that she'd also need a $1,000 because she had run up some debts and she didn't want her husband to be liable for them because while she was cheating on him and planning to abandon him for his probable best friend, she didn't want to put him in debt. You know, like Isaacs had done to him. He agrees, which... That's more than ten grand in today's money, but it's a plan. So she goes away, she goes to Palm Springs, has a great time, gets back, calls him up to say she's returned, and they discuss their trip plans. He calls her on August 2nd, and then again on August 3rd, the same day he got the check from Evelyn's mother, and he got all that cash. So that same day he calls to say he has their plane tickets, and she should start packing for the next day. August 3rd is also the last time Evelyn had seen Guy, and they ask her where he was calling from because, of course, uh, Detective Swindler is still scouring all those flight manifests out of Seattle, but it turns out he was at an airport hotel in Tacoma, Washington, which is less than 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of Seattle. Google Maps says it's a 36-minute drive. Now, if you're wondering whether Blake knew about Evelyn, she did not. And she was, as they say in Massachusetts, wicked pissed. She's furious. As far as she knew, Evelyn was another antique dealer who lived in the area, and he had no interest in her at all outside the professional. She thought Guy was so obsessed with her that he wouldn't have time for anyone else. When they tell her Guy married Evelyn on July 29th, she is stunned. She's shocked, she's furious, she's betrayed. How could the man she was cheating on her husband with, cheat on her? She tells them everything. He returns his rental car on the morning of the 4th, and on the morning of the 4th, she packs a bag and takes a cab to the airport. They'd be flying to San Francisco to pick up his yacht moored in a harbor there and set sail for Portugal the next day. So on the morning of the 4th, they flew to Portland. Guy used a fake name, which is why police couldn't find him on a flight manifest. They were flying as Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, but of course Blake thought this was all to keep her husband from finding them. They have a layover in Portland, then they're on another flight to San Francisco, where they check into a suite at the historic Mark Hopkins Hotel for the night under the name Rogers. The next day, they change hotels to a less fancy room at the also very historic St. Francis Hotel. Both of these hotels are still in San Francisco, still up and running. They're very nice, and they are not cheap. It's a surprise, really, because the Bay Area is usually so affordable. All right, so he gives a bunch of gold items. He gave her a gold wedding band that didn't fit her, but he said that they'd get it sized later. He also gave her at least one gold coin. I don't know why that seems like an odd gift for a side piece. Like, look, I got you a gold coin. I'm not sure. Unless this was to make up the thousand dollars, that could be why. Because you'll read he gave her a pin, he gave her coins, he gave her both. In any case, it's several hundred dollars at least worth of gold. I can't help but wonder whose ring it was. He had an antique shop, so who knows? But, you know, just please, dog, don't let it have been Mansie's. We know that he sold her engagement ring. In any case, they've done it, they've run away together, and it is all sunshine, silk pajamas, and sexy time. No, wait, it's San Francisco, so it's like foggy, moody, sexy time. But, you know, it's a good time. She said in the article by Ruth Reynolds that he bought her a pair of shoes and they cost $38, and he lectured her about how she had to be better at accepting gifts, because she deserves nice things. She deserves them. It's perfect. Except Blake feels lousy. I mean, she doesn't feel guilty. She just has a terrible, terrible sore throat and a fever. So they go and see a doctor, and the doctor says she needs to see a specialist. So Guy says, of course he says, he knows the top ear, nose, and throat specialist in town. He's at the University of California Berkeley campus, and he has an office in the alumni building. I'm sure she believed that Guy was also a UC Berkeley grad. That was one of his common lies, but he was not. He makes an appointment for her the next morning, and when the next morning comes, he calls her a cab. When it arrives, he hands her $6 for the fare and tells the driver to take her to the alumni building at UC Berkeley, which is about 30 to 40 minutes away depending on traffic, or at least it is today. I'm assuming it was the same in 1960. I could be wrong. He doesn't go with her. She arrives for her 10 a.m. appointment, and Guy had given her some very specific instructions. He told her to wait in front of the building until someone came to call her in to see the doctor, which... That's not how doctors' offices work. I've never seen a doctor's office work that way, have any of you? But she obviously trusted him, and I mean, who's going to lie about where a doctor is, right? It's an absurd thing to lie about, so you wouldn't think anyone was lying, especially a man you just ran away with. So poor Blake stands there, outside, on the sidewalk, probably in high heels, with a fever, feeling crummy for an hour. An hour, an hour. Finally, she goes in to look to see if she can find the office. And that's when, of course, she realizes that it's not there. There's no doctor there. It's an alumni building, it's not a medical suite. So she calls a cab and goes back to the hotel. And when she goes up to their room, surprise, surprise, Guy is gone. And so is the ring and the coins, all the things of value he gave her, also gone. He did leave behind some dirty underwear. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if she hadn't had that bad sore throat. What was the plan? Because it seems like there was another woman based on this quote from the Ann Rule book, Smoke, Mirrors, and Murder, about Guy's movements from after he married Evelyn on July 29th. And it says, quote, Herb Swindler learned that Rockwell had done some shopping on July 30th. He bought a set of expensive luggage at a downtown Seattle store, and three days later, just a day before he said he was going to Canada to collect the Indian artifacts, he spent $80 on a pair of silk pajamas and some underwear for himself. He also spent $49.50 on a woman's handbag and asked to have it gift-wrapped. If he didn't give it to Evelyn Emerson or to Blake, who had he given it to? There was undoubtedly a third woman in his life during that hot summer of 1960, but she never came forward. If, indeed, she could come forward. Every bit of information that turned up about Raoul Guy Rockwell sparked even more questions. So, yeah, you have to wonder who that $50 handbag was for. I looked it up, and a pair of Levi's jeans would have cost you about $5 back then. And the inflation calculator says that $50 would be more like $500 today. So I think we, we can all agree that there was some other woman other than Blake, Evelyn, and of course, Manzanita. And to spend that much money on a handbag, it had to be important, right? So much time has passed that we'll probably never know. But in the end, Blake had to sneak out of the hotel because he hadn't paid the bill and she couldn't afford to. And she had to call her husband and ask him to wire money for a flight home. Apparently, he didn't ask too many questions, which honestly just makes me sad. The more I think about this time that Guy spent with Blake, the more I'm convinced that he seduced her and got her to leave her husband just to see if he could. I really think that's what happened. And I do think her husband was probably his best friend. Or I should say, her husband thought Guy was his best friend. The only person Guy ever cared about is himself. I'd put money on that. Blake, in the meantime, can't believe she was treated this way, and neither can Evelyn. Evelyn realizes she really doesn't know Guy as well as she thought she did. She knows nothing about his childhood, his family, and now she's really feeling awful that he's stolen this money from her mother. Blake wasn't the only person who came forward when Guy's news kind of showed up in the papers. His brother Michael called from Southern California to let authorities know that Guy's real name was Rockwell Guy Moldovan, and he was 36, not 45. Michael also said that while he and Guy grew up together, they were never close. Guy always had shut himself off from the family and never really spoken to him, and he never pried. I also read that Michael said at one point after the Second World War, he had hired an investigator to try to track down his missing brother because he just vanished. Nobody knew where he was. I'm sure his parents were beside themselves with worry. And he succeeded. He found him. But he said that Guy only would talk to him on the condition that the other brothers and their parents leave him alone and stop trying to get in touch. So I think the antisocial aspect of things is, is... really crystal clear. It would be so interesting to me to know more about this family dynamic, but I feel pretty confident saying that, well, look, no family is perfect. Every family has the usual dysfunctions, right? Divorce, grief, illness, whatever. It's all normal. But I think in this case, Guy was recognized by many in the family as a really serious problem early on. And I think that they truly did everything they could for him. Like, I think they really tried to support him up until a point. I'd be frankly shocked if he hadn't manipulated all of them at one point or another, just to see if he could. I'd love to know more. These are the aspects of abnormal psychology that I just found so fascinating when I was a student. But, you know, disclaimer, that was 30 years ago and I never took statistics, so I don't actually have a degree in psych. I just find all of these horrible people who come from otherwise nice families fascinating. It happens all the time, but it's fascinating. So let's talk about what Guy did with that money that he took from Evelyn's parents. On August 6th, After ditching both his new wife, Evelyn, and old mistress, Blake, but at least leaving them alive, he flies to Reno, and then he buys a sports car for $3,000, and he's using the name Michael Strong. So original. Then he drives about 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, to... Provincetown, Massachusetts, where he pretends to be a writer for a Vancouver magazine and newspaper. So, here we can see he's taking on his father's accomplishments as his own, right? His father was a writer. He wrote books, newspaper columns. Also, I thought it was interesting that he's claiming his ex-wife's residency. She was from Vancouver. Then, after leaving Provincetown, he's off to New York City for a nose job. Then, apparently, he went to Key West to recover then back to New York for a second nose job. I hope the first one was really bad and he had terrible, terrible complications that plagued him for the rest of his life. Just one, one nostril that dripped all the time and then the other one was stuffy all the time, I hope. Anyway, so then he's back in New York and he signs a three-year lease in Greenwich Village, still using the name Michael Strong. Meanwhile, after hearing about Blake's story, Guy's mother in law decides to press charges. So that's Evelyn's mum. So now he is looking at a charge of grand larceny if they can find him. On August 8th, William Mearns, he is Manzanita's ex husband and Dolores' dad, he files a missing persons report, letting officials know that he is concerned about foul play. The Ann Rule book says this happened in early September, but every article I've read puts it a month earlier, which honestly makes a lot more sense. And if you're wondering why still he waited so long, because the last they were really seen was the first week of April, and he doesn't report it until August. But I'll just remind you that when Manzanita had left him for Guy about four years or so previous, she vanished without a word for like nine months. And it wasn't until he filed a missing persons report that he discovered that she was having an affair and living with Guy. So you can understand why he didn't immediately file, but this really was not like her or Dolores, and so he decides he needs to tell someone and just make this official. As for the police, in talking to neighbors and friends, they're now learning clues that seem a bit more suspicious now that they have more information. Neighbors reported that a little while back, there had been a truly horrific smell emanating from... The area near Guy's septic tank was. Guy apologized and said there was some crab that had spoiled and he had taken care of it. We discussed septic tanks when we discussed the murder of Cam Lyman. They're what homes that are not connected to a town sewer use, and they're pretty common in the United States. So there's an underground storage tank, basically, that all the household wastewater plumbing flows into. And there's generally a lid that you can access easily in case you need to have it pumped or serviced in any way. But the tank had since been sealed with concrete, so it was like sealed shut the lid. But not for long, because it was time for the authorities to look a lot more closely at the residence of Raoul Guy Rockwell. So there's a lot to discuss about what they found inside the house and inside that septic tank. This is a spoiler alert, but Guy will never be held accountable for the murder and dismemberment of Manzanita and Dolores. The reason I'm telling you this now, and I think I probably mentioned it last week, is I'm sincerely baffled that they didn't think they had enough evidence to bring this to trial and get a conviction. I'm baffled and angry. And I think I think all of you will feel the same way. On August 30th, The septic tank was pumped. Here is a partial list of what was found in the septic tank according to Dr. Gail Wilson, and this list is primarily from the Ann Rule book and also newspaper articles from the time. From the septic tank, they found a uterus with a small portion of the vaginal vault still attached, the upper portion of a human's right ear, a human kidney with adipocere attached. Adipocere is like a waxy, soap like substance that can form when human tissue is submerged in liquid for, for a period of time. They found five pieces of a human colon, along with mesentery that's the lining of your inner abdomen. They found a piece of a lung, a part of a muscle, a partial kidney, two sections of rib bones with sawed ends that were partially burned. They found an ulnar bone that's one of the two bones in the forearm. They found a radial epiphysis, which is the growth ends on the other forearm bone. They found four phalangeal bones, so hand-finger bones. They found a pair of dentures. I believe it was an upper dental plate, but that was never matched to belonging to anyone. They found quite a bit of human hair, paint brushes, and other random, bizarre household debris. So all of like paint brushes that kind of stuff. He had obviously opened up the tank and just put that stuff directly in because, I mean, I know he's a monster, but who would even attempt to flush a paintbrush down the toilet? Now they could tell that the blood type was type O, and they could tell that these body parts were likely not removed with surgical instruments or by anyone with any kind of skill. Things were rough, but they also had no DNA. They had nothing they could get a fingerprint from. But that said, based on what was found, the doctors felt that they were looking at the remains of a female who was approximately aged 16 to 20. So, Dolores. I really don't like the burned ribs. We're going to come back to that next week. Don't let me forget to bring that up. But that comes later. So they find more than 60 pieces of bones, organs, and tissue in that septic tank. And that makes the news, which of course has a huge ripple effect. On August 31st, the Spokane Chronicle reported the grisly find and included the information that the University of Washington had never heard of Guy, he had not attended school there. And it also came out that there was no knowledge of any Fulbright award. The Fulbright people had never heard of him. On September 1st, 1960, the Seattle detectives get a call, and it's from the sheriff's office in Wenatchee, Washington. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. W-E-N-A-T-C-H-E-E. Wenatchee, Washington. It's 150 miles east of Seattle on the Columbia River. And they're calling because they've read the news and they wanted to see if Seattle law enforcement were aware of those legs that I mentioned briefly last week. The first leg was found at the end of May, and it was determined to have come from a middle-aged woman with type O blood who was around 5 foot 7 inches. The second leg was found at the end of June, two miles from where the first one was found. They would be examined. They would be sent to the National Museum in Washington, D.C., where the brain in charge of physical anthropology, Dr. T.D. Stewart, would examine the scans of the legs, and from that he was able to say with some confidence that based on the joint where the thigh connects to the knee, he believed that the legs were from the same person, and this person was around the age of 35 to 40. Manzanita had no identifying scars or birthmarks, but she did have some identifiable features in regards to her legs and feet. I mean, show me a woman who's reached 40 in the high heel years who doesn't have any foot issues, right? Manzanita's case, her legs were somewhat distinctive. So she's described in terms that I think are unkind. I would say that, that the best way to describe Manzanita is to say that she had a larger lower body than an upper body. She had strong muscular legs as compared to a very slim upper body. They sort of act when you read this stuff that this is wild, right? That this is some really unique thing and not just a body type. She just had strong muscular legs and not a lot of definition from her leg to her ankle. Like easily 50% of my female friends, she would struggle to find a good boot for her calves, right? These legs were the same. And the feet were even more remarkable. The second toe was longer than the big toe which again is super common minus 2 but there were also bunions which so help me I didn't know exactly what bunions were until a friend of mine had surgery for them it's a bony bump on the base of the big toe and then the toe your big toe kind of ends up slanting toward your other toes like across your foot and high heels and shoes that are too narrow are one of the biggest causes Of having bunions. She also had very high arches and her smaller toes kind of curled under. Again, probably because of really pointy toed high heels that she was shoving her feet into on a daily basis. Manzanita's sister was shown a photograph, which again makes me sad, and thought it did look like her sister's feet and legs. They also got in touch with friends of the couple, and it was handy because the husband in the couple was an anthropologist and he also agreed that that the legs were consistent with that of Manzanita. In terms of evidence, they also had a nylon stocking in the box where one of the legs was found. It was a seamless micro-mesh, sort of a beige color, size 9.5. Meanwhile, the detectives back in Seattle had found out some more interesting information at the car rental company that Guy had used. They found out that on April 6th, the same week that Manzanita and Dolores vanished, Guy had rented a GMC panel truck there, leaving their lot around 2 p.m. and returning the next morning at 9 a.m. The records showed that the odometer proved the truck had been driven 319 miles or 513 kilometers. Wenatchee, where the legs had been found, is a 306 mile round trip. I also looked up what a uh, GMC panel truck looked like. And it's basically a van with no windows, best I can tell. Which is really what you want, probably, right? When you're getting ready to transport a bunch of wrapped up body parts to a huge roaring river. So let's get back to the rest of the evidence found when Herb Swindler, along with detectives Carol Hahn and Bill Panton, executed a search warrant for the entire building. So on September 6th, they began one of the most detailed searches in the history of Seattle law enforcement, and what they found was bad. Downstairs, in the kitchen, they found staining that was consistent with blood on the walls, and they found even more blood near the stairs. As they looked at the stairs, they saw a lot more blood. It all ended up being type O and human, which was about all you could learn from blood in 1960 and it looked like someone bleeding had been dragged up the stairs. One blood smear had some short hairs in it that looked interesting, so Swindler collected that as evidence. He was also able to collect some pink and white wool fibers that had been caught in dried blood smears. He found some long auburn hair on the steps, which were similar to Dolores'. Do you remember last week? I couldn't remember if I had read what color her hair was. Um, I went searching for it this time, and I found out that it was, in fact, sort of a dark reddish brown, and Manzanita had dyed her hair auburn, and some of her hair was found as well. They could tell the difference because Manzanita's hair, you know, there'd be a tiny bit of dark brown at the root, and then it would change to a dark auburn. I'm guessing they maybe had hair like mine, which was sort of red that got darker and darker over time. At the top of the stairs, the detectives were met with a just truly horrific sight. So it's clear that something awful went down here. It looked like, as I'm reading it, I just kept thinking this sounds like the final exam of a blood spatter analysis education, right? Blood was smeared, spattered. It was just, it was everywhere. It was on the walls, on the floor, on the ceilings. There were smears of it and drops of it. There was so much blood that it seeped through the floorboards and stained the joists and like the back side of the ceiling below. Some of the worst stains had just rugs piled over them. Like, oh, that's fine. Giant blood stain, throw a rug on it. No one will notice. They found piles of bloody fabric as well as a pair of men's size 13 slippers that were totally soaked in dried blood. It seems at one point, Guy had just a brilliant idea as to hide some of this blood, and he painted over a blood stain with blue paint. And then when the paint was wet, he put cardboard and paper and just all kinds of crap all over the wet paint, so it all kind of got stuck to the floor. So you couldn't, there was just so much stuff to try to get through to even see the blood stains. But when they pulled the actual floorboards up, there was plenty of blood to be seen. This is also probably, I'm guessing, the uh, reason why they found paintbrushes in the septic tank. They found a tooth near the top of the stairway determined to belong to someone around age 20, so Dolores. And they also found countless other bits, small bits, of, like, flesh and bone spattered around the place. They found a meat saw with a frame and two blades... I'm guessing the first saw was used until it was dull and then replaced. They found type O blood and tissue inside the saw frame. So all of the blood and tissue evidence is blood type O, and that is what they believe both Manzi and Dolores had. Guy was type B. Manzi had said apparently offhandedly to a friend that she was type O. They weren't really 100% sure. They ended up testing, I believe, William Mearns and Manzanita's other children who were all type O. They also found a pair of underwear of Dolores's that had menstrual blood on them, and they were able to get a blood type from that. So I think it's all safe to assume that this is all Manzanita and Dolores because Guy was type B also found and taken from the house as evidence were empty boxes of oversized plastic bags, some remnants of a really thick roll of plastic, as well as remnants of twine and rope. I don't think I need to explain any of that to anyone. They also found some gun and ballistics evidence, I guess, to quote and rule, quote, a 22 caliber expended long rifle bullet, apparently fired through the box spring of a mattress in the bedroom and a box of 22 caliber bullets, end quote. There's nothing else really to talk about with any of that because we never, there was never enough of a body found to know exactly what happened or if anybody was shot or we just don't know they found some nylon stockings that were consistent with the one that was found with one of the dismembered legs. Detectives were able to trace the brand of nylon to a store that was steps away from the route Manzi took every day to get to the bank. And that store had a huge sale on these specific nylons back in early March. So while they couldn't for sure say that that's where everything had come from, it all, it certainly looked that way. You know, it was a lot of coincidental information. Neighbors also helped detectives to see what might have been missing from the place, but that was another really disturbing fact because not much was missing. All of their clothes, shoes, makeup, other cosmetics, perfume, expensive lotions, everything was there in a barrel. Hairbrushes that they took for evidence, purses, identification, Dolores's school books, Half finished sewing projects. It's all there. The only thing missing was a rust colored suit that was worn a lot, as well as a pink and white skirt and top, which Manzanita had last been seen in. And that would be consistent with those pink and white fibers found in the dried blood. Neighbors also informed police that several of Manzanita's jewelry items had been for sale at the shop for an absolute bargain. Like, one of them went in and bought these amber earrings for an absolute steal and so called up one of her friends and was like you have to come see this sale at this antique store and at the time they all thought that he was just desperately trying to recoup some of the money that he said she had stolen from him right but now it looked it looked bad so the hairs found on the stairs were consistent with hair that was found in the two hairbrushes they were found under the lip of the stair tread it sounds almost like like they would have been dragged foot first up the stairs with their head maybe hitting, hitting the stairs, maybe. The short hair swindler found in the dry blood were determined to be from a cow. And that was initially really confusing. It was like white and brown cow hair. And they were like, huh. But then, when they were going over, uh, when they were going through all the clothes with the neighbors, they learned that one of the things that was missing was a belt that the two women both wore all the time, which was brown and white cowhide. So that explained that. So now the papers are just all over this case. They are calling him a bunco artist, which, according to the website of the National Association of Bunco Investigators, Quote, the word bunco comes from the Spanish word banco, meaning bank, and is used to describe several swindle schemes. Other terms for the swindles are confidence or con games. In a scheme, the bunco operator selects a person to participate, gains the participant's confidence by telling a believable story, asks for the participant's help, or promises the participant money or goods, asks the participant to show Good faith by producing cash in advance for the promised money or goods. End quote. I thought that was kind of interesting. And so, yeah, they're calling him out for being a con artist and a flim flam man. And they're asking now, where are Dolores and Manzanita and where is he? And it's honestly surprising to me that none of the articles I've read have really just come out and said, like, clearly these body parts are Manzanita and Dolores but people were thinking it, and they were wondering if perhaps these were not his first murders. The following is from the Spokane Chronicle, 26th of September, 1960. Quote, The Humboldt County Sheriff's Office yesterday said Raul Guy Rockwell is wanted for questioning in the nineteen fifty slaying of a bread truck driver and the disappearance of a waitress. Deputy Sheriff Harvey Larson said Rockwell's name came into the case in recent weeks after human remains were found in a septic tank in his Seattle home. Rockwell has been missing from Seattle since August. His second wife, Mrs. Manzanita Rockwell, 39, and her daughter, Dolores Mearns, 18, disappeared in April. The remains found in the septic tank have been identified as those of a young woman. Rockwell lived in Fortuna, in Humboldt County, from late 1947 or early 1948 until sometime in 1950, Larson said. The body of Henry Baird, 22, of Eureka, California, was found June 18, 1950, near Table Bluff, a naval radio station in the Fortuna area. He had been shot in the back of the head. The body was naked except for shoes and socks. The rest of the clothes were piled nearby. A 32 caliber pistol, the caliber with which Baird was shot, was missing from Baird's car. Officers said Baird had last been seen the previous Saturday night with Barbara Kelly, 17, a Fortuna waitress. She was not seen again. Her clothes were found piled under Baird's. The parents of Rockwell's first wife, with whom he was then living, owned one of Fortuna's two restaurants. The waitress worked in the other restaurant. Both were on Baird's route. Rockwell worked as a short order cook in the restaurant owned by his father in law, Jerome Loop. Deputy Larson said he is trying to locate Loop. End quote. So, the 1950 case of the murder of Henry Baird and the disappearance of Barbara Kelly is actually a really interesting one, and I'm going to be covering it as its own topic very soon. In later interviews with police, it seems they decided that Guy had left the area before Henry Baird had been found shot to death and Barbara Kelly went missing. But it has been noted by everyone who's read about the case, I'm sure, that Henry's clothes were found folded neatly beside his body, and so were Barbara's, except for the shoes and socks. And this reminds everyone familiar with the case, really, about the way Ruth the Lady of the Dunes, was found nude with her clothes folded neatly beside her. It's interesting. Someone else in a mental hospital at the time confessed to the murder of Henry and Barbara, and while it superficially seems like Guy was cleared, I really want to know more. So I'm going to see what I can find. I'm going to dig into it and we'll be discussing all of it in its own episode once I finish that research. This is why I said last week it sort of mattered where people were living in 1950. So, Guy's Trail has now gone cold. Police charge John Doe on the mutilation of human remains on November 1st. Guy is charged with fleeing in order to refuse testimony. And he's also charged on larceny charges for stealing that money from his wife's mother. Interestingly, his first wife, Joellen, she's still making payments on the antique store. So he's bailed, he's taken off. And despite the fact that Guy, surprise, surprise, never paid any alimony or child support, he owes her thousands and thousands in unpaid support. No one's surprised, right, that he's not going to take responsibility for anything. But Joellen is half-owner of that antique store at 2512 Fairview Avenue, and so she's still making payments on it, trying not to lose that investment. And then, at last, we find Guy. This is from the New York Daily News, New York, New York, 2nd of December, 1960. I have edited for clarity, and I've just cut out some repetitive information, and so this article is called Seize Village Casanova Among Curios After Grizzly Coast Find by Norma Abrams and Sidney Klein. Hipster, bunco artist, and great lover Guy Rockwell, 37, was seized in his curio-cluttered Greenwich Village apartment yesterday by the FBI. The arrest ended a search launched by Seattle, Washington police in August when human remains believed to be those of his second wife and stepdaughter were found. He stands 6 foot 2, weighs close to 250 pounds, and has brown hair dyed red, and offered no resistance when the federal men broke in on the pad at 485 Carmine Street, which he rented as Michael Strong. Neither did he protest when U.S. Commissioner Bishop fixed $50,000 bond pending a hearing next Thursday on the charges of unlawfully fleeing to avoid giving testimony before a grand jury concerning the mutilation of a human being. If I had money, I wouldn't put it up, Guy insisted. Are you willing to go back to Seattle? demanded Bishop, with some surprise. Yes, sir, I am. Am I supposed to have fled to avoid arrest? No, said the commissioner, to avoid giving testimony. The prisoner seemed relieved. Before moving to Seattle, Guy had been an actor and a disc jockey in California. In his new home, he started an antique shop which rarely opened its doors before 6 p.m. In it, nightly, clustered beatniks, art lovers, celebrities, and celebrity hunters, all bound by Guy's magnetism and offbeat personality, end quote article goes on to explain the theft from Evelyn and how he was supposed to be going to Canada to buy some illegal antiques and smuggle them back, which I still can't get over the fact that he thought that was a good cover story. I guess if your cover story has you breaking laws at that time, what might be considered small ways, then other sketchy things you do can maybe be explained. So it might not have been a terrible tactic. He's just the worst, this guy. So then the article continues kind of savagely. Uh, It says, quote, Actually, according to authorities, he headed for San Francisco with Blake, 27, then ditched her after two days in the San Francisco Hotel. Said one Seattle antique dealer, We thought him something of a rascal and full of hot air, but he was forceful and interesting. He has been working here in a restaurant, according to the assistant U.S. attorney, James Rose Jr. End quote. Found in a restaurant, which is interesting because maybe that's where he started as well with his first wife's family. But I think this is probably a good place to stop. Oh, there's so much still to talk about. All right, so next week we're going to be talking about just, I want to say the shenanigans, but that's not right because it's more serious than that. But just how he got away with the murder of Manzanita And Dolores. Should I be saying alleged? All right, I said it, alleged, but I think we all know he's guilty as sin. And I will tell you what I've been able to find out about him marrying Ruth Terry. And next week, Ruth and her story will be the primary focus. There's so much. Today, though, I am thinking about the Ryan and the Mearns families. Um, Ryan was Manzanita's maiden name. Manzanita was a beautiful woman. who loved her family, loved her children. She was smart and vivacious and beautiful and the victim of a total sociopath and con man. She didn't just meet a man and fall for him and run off and leave her first husband. I sincerely believe that she was manipulated and deceived in the worst way. In the worst way. And Dolores... Also beautiful. She was also smart and a really hard worker. She was in her first year at university. She just had such a bright, promising future ahead of her. Uh, she had sisters and they lost their sister and their mother to this absolute awful, awful person. Their stories are so important. And that's why I didn't want to rush through this information and what we can piece together about them today. And that's all for now. My something good is, you know, I think my something good is the fact that this podcast gives us a platform to remember the dead. We often have to talk a lot about the bad guy, no, no pun intended in this case, just in order to understand how things came to be, how things happened. But really, it's being able to tell the story of these women whose lives mattered, to so many people who matter to me, to us, still today. It's honestly, it's a sincere privilege, and I would like to thank you all, all of our listeners, for caring about what happened to Dolores and Manzanita as much as we do. I'm I'm just so grateful that we're able to help, I don't know, they mattered, you know? they mattered and they're missed. All right. If you need to know how to find us, you can go to freshhellpodcast.com and our website will tell you pretty much everything, how to find us, our PO box, our email address, which is freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again to all of our patrons. You'll find us on patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I'm amazed still that people think we're worthy of financial support. That blows my mind every single week. So thank you. Very sincerely, thank you. I wouldn't be able to find all this information out if it weren't for all of you, truly. These subscriptions are not cheap, and I'm just... I I just keep saying thank you, really thank you. Um. Please tell your dogs that our dogs said hi, specifically. And to all the other pets, give them the snugs from us. Please be kind to each other. And I know the hardest is to be kind to yourself, please, because you matter and you're important. And as always, if you're going through hell, keep going. I'll see you next week. Bye.